Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Good morning, Southeastern Seminary. Thank you for inviting me to be with you today. Open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 2, where in just a few moments I'll be reading a passage of Scripture that will be the foundation for this morning's message. Mark chapter 2. While you're turning to Mark 2, let me say uh, thank you to Danny Aiken for inviting me to be your chapel guest today. Our schools are as far apart geographically in the uh, continental United States as two schools can be, but very much aligned on our commitment to getting the gospel to the nations. Uh, we have long been set, being called the, um, the mission seminary of the Southern Baptist Convention, and that's really not true. All of our seminaries are mission se- seminaries. We're a little bit unique in we're, that we're actually sent to the Western United States to get the work done, but every time I'm with uh, Dr. Aiken, I feel a great kinship between our schools and our mutual commitment to get the gospel to the nation. So thank you, brother, for that. A few months ago, Dr. Steve Gaines, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, appointed a national task force on evangelism. Uh, Dr. Jim Shaddix from Southeastern Seminary was added to that task force, as was I. And we are working currently to address the issue of the steep decline in baptisms in the Southern Baptist Convention, and of course, underlying that, a corresponding decline in witnessing, in evangelism, in winning people to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there are many reasons for the decline in baptisms in our convention. Those reasons may be theological, philosophical, methodological, programmatic, even demographic. I call all of those reasons the macro reasons. They are the broad overarching reasons that definitely do have impact on what happens in our denomination, in our churches, and specifically in our capacity to reach more people with the gospel. But in this morning's chapel message, it is not possible to address all of these or perhaps even any one of these thoroughly. So instead of speaking on a macro level about the theories and possibilities of what might need to change, I want to speak to you on the micro level. I want to speak to you about a core issue related to increasing baptisms, and by that I mean increasing personal evangelism that results in baptisms across our convention, in our churches, and yes, even here at a missions-focused seminary like Southeastern. I want to talk with you today about developing personal passion for introducing people to Jesus Christ. And I want to do that by showing you a story in Mark chapter 2 of some fellows who brought a friend to Jesus. And from that story, draw out some principles and maybe an illustration-type format to help us understand what it means for us to have passion for personally introducing people to Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. When he entered Capernaum, meaning Jesus... When when Jesus entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway, and he was speaking the word to them. They came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four of them. 
Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, <laughs> your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he got up took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And my friends, if it happened this morning in this chapel at Southeastern Seminary, you would leave saying the same thing. We have never seen anything like this. This is a story of four men who brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus. It's also a story of the response that the religious elite had to this incident. And from this story, I think we see some principles, if you will, about what it means to have a passion for introducing people to Jesus Christ. Let's start with this principle. This passion, this passion is revealed when we are determined to introduce people to Jesus. Now, I want to emphasize the last two words of that phrase, of that sentence. I said passion is revealed by our determination to introduce people to Jesus, to Jesus. It strikes me in this story that while there's much that could be said about taking off the roof, lowering the man, getting him into place, doing all these things that caused everyone to be so astounded, it strikes me that there was something about these four friends that were absolutely convinced that their paralyzed friend had to meet Jesus. Why? Well, Jesus does two things for this paralyzed man, which reveal really why it's so important for people to meet him. And these two things that he does typify the two primary roles or offices he has in our lives even today. Notice what happened first of all in verse five. Jesus, seeing the faith of those who'd brought the man to him, told the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. So Jesus forgave the man his sins. But beyond that, drop down to verse 11 and 12. Jesus then says to him, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And immediately he got up, took the mat and went out in front of everyone. Jesus then healed the paralytic, restoring his physical health. Now, I think these typify, if you will, two aspects of what Jesus and only Jesus can do for people. Jesus forgave the paralytic and Jesus healed the paralytic. On the one hand, Jesus brought, uh, on the one hand, this speaks of Jesus' capacity as a, as, as a, to give eternal life. I don't usually stutter like this, but I don't always get up at 3.30 in the morning. Why do you guys have chapel so early on the West Coast where the real time is? It's a decent hour of the day. So let's start over here. Jesus forgave him and healed him. Jesus gave him, if you will, eternal life, meaning that he forgave him of his sins and made him ready for a perpetual relationship in heaven. But then Jesus gave him abundant life, gave him back his physical health so he could live a more productive life here and now. So Jesus was Savior and Lord in this story. 
Jesus forgave and healed, gave eternal life and abundant life, prepared the man forever and prepared him for it right now. He was his Savior and his Lord. Only Jesus can do these things. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that people that you know, your friends, your family members, your work associates, people in your community, do you really believe that they must meet Jesus, the person, Jesus Christ, as Savior and Lord, that they might be forgiven and restored, that they might have eternal life and abundant life? You know, the danger in a seminary community like yours and frankly like mine is that Jesus becomes Christology. Jesus becomes a theology. Jesus becomes a theory or a philosophy. Jesus becomes something in the abstract that's debated. But in this story, he's none of the, those things. In this story, he's a man that, his, that these four friends desperately wanted their friend to meet. And so I ask you this morning, do you have this same kind of passion that you are determined to introduce people to Jesus, not the theory of Jesus, not the theology of Jesus, not an idea about Jesus, not a philosophy of Jesus, but Jesus Christ, the person who can transform their lives. Jesus wants to forgive and heal. He wants to give eternal life and abundant life. He wants to make people ready for heaven and ready for right now. And only Jesus Christ a person can do this. And so I challenge you this morning to see people with fresh eyes and see them as people who need to be introduced to Jesus Christ who can do for them only what he can do and what they so desperately need. How do you see people? Well, these fellows saw their friend as a person in desperate need of meeting Jesus. The critics in the story saw it a different way. We'll get to that in a moment. How do you see people? For example, when you turn on the news and there's some protester there with a sign standing up against everything you believe and stand for, what do you see? You see someone that you rail against, I wish they'd get off my TV. I can't believe they're out there doing that. What's wrong with these people? Or do you see a person like that and say, what wounded them in their past that they would be so full of anger? What personal pain are they carrying that they're expressing in this destructive way? Well, beyond those people that are out there somewhere, what about the people right around you? Because of my training as a young Christian and the training I received even in seminary, I have a spiritual habit of often seeing people and finding myself asking, does this person know Jesus and praying for them that they might know him even if it's not appropriate or, or I'm not able to speak to them about it in the moment. For example, I'm standing in Ralph's. That's a grocery store out where I live. And I'm watching the checker, the woman who runs the scanner. And I'm thinking to myself, is she a Christian? Does she know Jesus Christ? I go down the street to a drugstore and I'm asking for someone to help me and they do and then as that person walks away I think does that person know Jesus Christ 
Do you have this kind of fresh eyes about people where you see people for what they really are and who they really are, that everywhere you go, whether you see some protester on a TV or a checker in a stand or a person who helps you at a store, do you see these people and you're constantly having this thought come through your mind, does this person know Jesus Christ? Does this person know Jesus Christ? Does this person know Jesus Christ? Do you see people with fresh eyes for who they really are and know that if they don't meet Jesus Christ, they'll never, they'll never have their deepest needs met and find the life you know he made them to have? For many years... I worked in, as a chaplain for a professional sports team for 10 years, devoted many, many, many hundreds of hours to that ministry. It was always intriguing to me when people would find out that I did that, what they would ask me. They would always ask me things about the players and their performance. Well, why can't so-and-so hit a curveball? And how come their slider's gone flat? And why are they not in better shape? And how come they get hurt all the time? And all these issues about that. And, they would, and people would say, well, when you talk with the guys, what? and I would just stop and say, hold on a second. We never talk about baseball because I don't see them as baseball players. I see them as people who need Jesus. <laughs> people who need Jesus. And so my constant focus on them was not, oh, can you play this position or can you hit this ball or can you throw this pitch? It was, how can I help you find a relationship with Jesus Christ that transforms you for eternity and gives you the abundant life you're even looking for right now? In this story, these men were determined to introduce their friend to Jesus, a person. And they were determined to do that because they saw what their friend could become if he could only meet Jesus. And they saw with fresh eyes, not a crippled man on a pallet, but a person of potential and opportunity and a person who would be changed if he could only meet Jesus. So I'm challenging you this morning to have that same kind of determination to be determined to get your friends introduced to Jesus Christ as a person and to see the people around you for who they can really become if they'll only meet him. Well, a second principle about passion in this story is our passion is revealed when we're intentional, intentional about getting people to Jesus. Now, I find this story intriguing on so many levels, but it's kind of interesting how commentators write about it. They spend a lot of time describing how this guy got on the roof. Uh, well, the, the, the houses in the first century had stairwells built up at the side of them, the outside. Houses in the first century were clustered together, and there was always a stairwell up on the outside. Houses in the first century had slow-sloping roofs that came all the way down to ground level. You could climb right up on the roof. I'm like, I get it. I'm sure there was some logical explanation for how those fellows got on that roof, but I don't really think that's the point Mark's trying to make here. I wouldn't think he's, what he's trying to say is these guys got on a roof. They got there. There's a massive crowd. People are stacked through the windows and the doors. They can't get anywhere. And nobody wants to make a path for this crippled guy. He's not really worth being up at the front anyway. Well, the rest of us need to hear. We all have real potential, but not these four friends. They were determined, intentionally strategizing, how do we get our friend to Jesus? So somehow they got up on that roof, tore open that roof, dropped him down, and Jesus did what only he can do. Wow. Passion is not revealed by you talking a good game about sharing your faith. <laughs> it's revealed by you intentionally creating a strategy and getting after the challenge of really getting it done. It's not standing out there on the periphery with your friend on a pallet and saying, well, we really tried to get him to Jesus. Well, we thought about getting him to Jesus. Wouldn't it be great if he got to Jesus? Well, I could give you a paper on how important it is for him to get to Jesus. Yeah, that's how we are so often. But these guys said, no, that's not enough. We have to find a way to get this done. So here's what I want to challenge you to do this morning. 
I want to challenge you to find a way to get it done. Find a way to actually be involved in introducing people to Jesus Christ. And there's so many ways to do this. Just pick one. For example, recently I went to uh, the Harvest Crusade in our area. Greg Laurie, a pastor in, the, in Southern California that the North American Mission Board is using to help us in national evangelism crusades, does an annual crusade. 30 years they've been doing it there in our area. I went this past summer and I stood a man stand up in front of 50,000 people in a stadium and preach a simple, articulate, clear message of Jesus Christ and then call people to come to faith and they come streaming down the aisles by the thousands to receive Jesus. If you are a crusade evangelist or a future crusade evangelist, get after that intentional strategy. You say, well, that is definitely not me. All right, then let's pick another one for you. Maybe you're like a recent graduate of Gateway Seminary who moved to Wyoming to a town of 15,000 people in literally the middle of nowhere. I've been there. I said, why would you come here? He said, because these people need to be introduced to Jesus Christ. And I believe God's called me to work in small towns like this. They've planted a church. They're seeing people come to faith in Jesus. Just this summer, they opened the church and the first person came to faith in just the first weeks after the church started. And they were so excited with their first baptism. And I thought, that's exactly what we're about. Intentionally going out there and planting churches to reach new people with the gospel. You say, well, that's not me. All right, then. Maybe you're like the guys in my church that are very concerned about at-risk African-American young men in our community. And so they've come together to form something called the Good Man Ministry, where they're reaching out to these young guys, bringing them into mentorship relationships, introducing them to Jesus Christ, helping them with discipleship issues. But beyond that, helping them learn how to apply for a job, how how, how to dress for a formal dinner or for a nice banquet, how to go into a social setting or to a professional setting and know what to do in that context. This is a good man program. It's based on what the Bible describes Barnabas as in Acts chapter 11. He was what? A good man. And so these guys are trying to win young men to faith in Christ, disciple them, and more than that, even mentor them in life and leadership. Wow, what a wonderful intentional strategy that is. You say, well, that's not for me. I can go, I can go on here for a while. Are you ready? Well, why don't you just build a relationship with your neighbor? Not long ago, a moving truck backed into our neighborhood, and so I went down there. And said, hey, listen, I live up the street. Glad you're here. Would it be possible for me to help you unload your truck? I said, that would be great. So I helped him for a while, and we had a chance to start a relationship. Now, that's just the start of a relationship. I really didn't go down there necessarily just to help him move, although that was a good thing to do. I went down there to meet a new neighbor because I have a strategy for trying to meet my neighbors and introduce every one of them to Jesus Christ. You say, well, that's not for me. Well, what about the church that led me to faith in Christ? I didn't grow up in a Christian family, and so when I was 13 years old, I had attended a Sunday school a few times at a local Baptist church, and to my surprise, I went to the West Texas Regional Fair. I walked off the the midway and into the exhibit building, and there's a sign, Elmcrest Baptist Church Public Opinion Poll, and they had a survey booth at the fair. I'd been to Sunday school there a few times, and I thought, what are they doing here? So I walked up and asked that question, what are you doing here? (laughs) The youth pastor recognized me from having been to Sunday school and said, we're taking a public opinion survey and then asking people some spiritual interest questions. Would you like to take our survey? I said, yeah, I guess. And 20 minutes later, I had heard the gospel 
And as far as I know, it was the first time I'd ever heard the gospel clearly communicated to me. Now, I may have heard snippets of it or pieces of it in those Sunday school classes I casually attended, but I heard the gospel. And I prayed and received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior that day at the fair, and I have never been the same since. I'm challenging you to be intentional about introducing people to Jesus. Be a crusade evangelist, be a church planter, start a ministry in your community, go next door and meet your neighbor or organize some people and go to the fair. I don't particularly care which strategy or method you choose, but pick one and get busy. Intentionality. Not just standing around talking about what ought to be done, wishing what could be done, or promising that you'll do more someday, but now saying, I will start preaching. I will start, I will start, I will help start a church. I will find a ministry. I'll meet a neighbor. I'll organize and go to the fair. I will find some intentional strategy to get the gospel to people and to get people introduced to Jesus Christ. Now, this passion I'm describing is about getting people to Jesus with intentional strategy. But now, look at one last part of the story. When you do this, when you're passionate about introducing people to Jesus and you're determined and intentional in doing those things, you will face opposition. And it may come from the most unlikely source. There are two kinds of opposition in this text. One, I'll just mention the circumstances. We're all against people coming to Jesus. We hear that sometimes today. Oh, it's too hot. It's too rainy. It's too cold. I don't have my relationship built long enough. I'm waiting for a good time. I'm waiting for the right time. I'm waiting for the best time. Circumstances are never going to be right, are they? (laughs) But that's not really the focus of the opposition in this story. The focus of the opposition for people being introduced to Jesus in this story came from the religious elite. This is sobering because this is us. This is not the bad people somewhere, this is us. Do you understand that if you're here at this seminary and you graduate from Southeastern Seminary, you will be a one percenter? In terms of the religious training available in the world today, you will be in the one percent category of the excellence, of the depth, of the quality of the training that you're receiving. You will, by any definition, be a religious leader who has had an elite opportunity for education. And so we see what happened in this story, verse 6. But some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? It's incredulous, isn't it? A crippled man rolls down this center aisle in a wheelchair this morning, and by some miraculous intervention of God, 
he stands up out of that chair and walks out the center aisle. It would be like you seeing that and saying, well, he can't do that unless he comes down the side aisle first. That's what it would be like. Do, do, you, do you grasp how tragically pathetic this story is about what it reveals about these scribes? This man forgiven and healed in their midst and all they can say is, you can't do it that way. And this is just the beginning of their opposition. As you move through this part of Mark, one of the themes of this gospel, this section of this gospel, is the increasing opposition to Jesus from the religious elite. In Mark chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, it says they were thinking in their hearts, are thinking thoughts of opposition to Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 16, these same religious elite questioned Jesus' disciples, advancing their opposition one step. In chapter 2, verse 24, they then actually complain to Jesus about what he's doing. And then in chapter 3, verse 6, they're plotting with others to start to undermine the ministry of Jesus. And then in chapter 3, verses 22, they actually attribute to Satan the work they see Jesus doing. Now, notice this five-fold progression in this gospel narrative about the opposition Jesus faced. The oppos the, these religious leaders started out thinking opposition thoughts to Jesus, questioning Jesus' disciples, then confronting Jesus directly. When none of that worked, they moved to a higher level of opposition, plotting to undermine the ministry of Jesus, and then attributed the ministry of Jesus Christ to Satan himself. It is possible, this story reveals, for us to develop a sense of religious, for us to develop a religious perspective, a sense of religious elitism, a sense of being such favored religious sons and daughters that we find ourselves in opposition to people being introduced to Jesus. You say, that does not happen today. Yes, it does. You may face opposition from other believers for sharing the gospel in at least three ways. Some people will criticize your methods if they see you winning numbers of, large numbers of people to faith in Jesus. Well, you, everybody knows that he's just manipulating people to come to Jesus. Oh, that's just a bunch of emotionalism that they're doing. Oh, that's just buses picking up a bunch of children. I heard that when I was a children's pastor years ago. Criticizing methods. Because you're winning more people to faith in Jesus than someone else is, they may say things about your methodology to try to cast doubt on the legitimacy of your gospel witness. Criticism of motives. Well, you know, the only reason he's trying to do that is because he wants to be a big church. He just wants people to notice him. He just wants people to recognize him. He just wants to get a bigger church. He just wants to move up the ladder. Right? Criticizing your motives because you're reaching large numbers of people for Jesus Christ. And then sometimes people today will even criticize your, your beliefs or your theology. Well, if that person is winning that many people to Christ, they must have watered down the gospel. They must be compromising it some way. They can't be preaching a real gospel if people are really responding. 
kind of quiet in here, isn't it, this morning? We've all faced this. But what we really want to avoid is not facing it, but being in the camp that does it. Where we find ourselves criticizing other believers' methods and motives and beliefs just because they're winning more people to faith in Christ than we are, are doing it in a way we don't do it, or in a motive that we might not understand, or with a theology that might not be exactly like we think it ought to be, we find ourselves being among the elite religious leaders who stand back and pontificate about what ought to be happening while those in the arena are making it happen. But my wife and I went. On a Friday night, we drove down to Anaheim, went to the stadium. Why did I go? Well, for two reasons. One, I wanted to be supportive of the effort. Just by my presence and by whatever little bit of influence I have, I wanted to be supportive. But I'll tell you the second reason I went. I went because I wanted to be in a place where I saw large numbers of people coming to faith in Jesus because I needed the encouragement spiritually to keep at this work. So I sat there. I listened to the music. Frankly, some of it I didn't quite understand because they are on the edge musically, but that's okay. That's okay. What about me? I understood that. And then I heard the preaching, such simple, direct, clear preaching. And then I saw literally thousands of people streaming down to receive Christ. And then I left the stadium. And I was barely touching the ground. I was walking a little bit above on the air. I was so excited. My wife and I got just outside the stadium and there's two guys standing there with a group of people with them holding up signs. And one of them said this, Lori preaches false gospel. And the other one said, true Christianity, true Christianity, stop here. In other words, stop here and talk to us about true Christianity. And I stood there spiritually deflated and thought about these guys in this passage. Here these two men stood with their little cadre of supporters saying, what's in the arena isn't true Christianity and is a false theology, and we're here to fix it. I wrote about this in my blog, and I said, if I have to choose, I will choose to stand with the man in the arena who is giving a good faith effort to preach the gospel and win people to Jesus as opposed to the critics in the parking lot who can only cast stones at that which they cannot do themselves. So Southeastern, I've come today to challenge you to have a greater passion about introducing people to Jesus Christ. These big issues in our denomination, they need to be addressed. But even if they're all effectively addressed, unless you make a personal decision that you're going to engage people and bring them to Jesus in every way that you can, nothing really is going to be different, is it? And so I challenge you this morning. Let your passion be revealed by your determination and your intentionality. And be careful that you are not one of the critics against those who are trying to introduce more people to Jesus, but instead you are one of those in the arena that is trying to get that done. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this simple story of some friends who brought a friend to Jesus. Lord, we want to be like that. We really do. We don't want to stand on the sideline criticizing motives or methods or even beliefs that may be a little different than ours. But where we find the gospel being preached and the gospel being shared, 
We want to be there, Lord, in the arena, on the firing line, in the game. We want to be there, Lord. And so I pray today for Southeastern Seminary, its faculty and staff and students, that you will motivate them to be more personally engaged in sharing the gospel by introducing more of their friends and family members, community members, and other associates to Jesus Christ. Lord, make this a reality here at Southeastern and then do the same thing for us at our place that we might be better equipped, more highly motivated to obey you in this task. And we receive it from you in Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.